You're listening to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. We have two guests today that were with us before, so please tune into the podcast prior to this to meet them, but I will reintroduce them. Emily Nanko and Rasan Thomas. Together, they founded a nonprofit called Empowerment Avenue. The mission of this organization is to assist talented writers and artists in prison gain access to mainstream outlets so the world can read and see their creative work. The group has expanded into creating documentaries featuring formerly incarcerated people, as well as those currently in prison. So Emily is a journalist and director of Writing for Liberation. Rasan is best known for his work on the podcast Ear Hustle, which is broadcast literally all over the world, in prisons and regular listeners, just everything. He co-hosted Ear Hustle from inside San Quentin. He is a writer and filmmaker. He's been paroled from San Quentin as of about a year ago, February 2023. It's great to have you back on Pursuing Justice. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So we dug into your backgrounds a little bit. Actually, we didn't talk about what brought the two of you together, which I would like to uh, like to talk about. How did that happen? Emily was there for the breast cancer walk, but I didn't know her. But she had talked to a guy named Eddie and Eddie ran and came and got me. He said, New York, which is my nickname because everybody knows I'm from Brooklyn, New York. She said, there's a lady from New York on the yard. You got to meet her. And so I said, where is she? <laughs> and so I went to meet her and she, we talked about journalism and all this stuff. And she was interested already in trying to amplify the voice of incarcerated people. And I was like, well, that's perfect. I have this whole grant proposal I've been working on that uh, would have an Airstream van. And our goal would be everybody leave prison with 100000 and a little earlier, uh, all this stuff. And I sent this grant to her that we worked on, me, her, and a lady named Sue Kim. And she never filed it anywhere, Harriet. To this day, she has never filed that grant anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Instead, uh, George Floyd got martyred. And when he got martyred, it it created a climate where COVID hit as well. So we were in a perfect storm where people could not, journalists could not come into the prison to cover Mm -hmm. the stories. If you wanted the, the COVID story, you had to get it from us. And at the same time, people really wanted to help. People wanted to get more involved with social justice. So Emily can take it from there. Okay, go ahead, Emily. Yeah, I mean, I think it really was meant to be that it was something, you know, I had been interested in. Rasan had this vision. It was on paper. He connected me to these incredible folks on the outside. So this immediate community formed around this idea. Rasan had co-founded a nonprofit while he was inside already. So there was just this structure in place to do this. And, you know, obviously COVID and George Floyd really changed everything. And it was this backdrop of urgency and also time. I had a lot of time to just be home and and recruiting volunteers, people who I felt could were like me, maybe didn't have a lot of connection or maybe had never even spoken to an incarcerated person, but were in the media industry and cared about this stuff. And we could help sort of bring them in community with incarcerated writers. And so early on, it basically was writers, Rasan included, sending out 
mostly handwritten or typed on a typewriter reports of COVID at San Quentin, which at a certain point had the largest outbreak in the country. Folks were on pretty much constant lockdown. And we had a small team on the outside transcribing and creating digital copies of this work and pitching it out to outlets and helping publication happen. And there's really, I think from the very beginning, this feeling of we can't let the Department of Corrections write the history on COVID in prisons. And, you know, the stakes were clear right away of, of the importance of the work. And I also say Rasan and I worked together through 15 minute phone calls where the phones were in high demand. Obviously, you guys had limited phone time. And I just remember the stress of just connecting and talking about what was happening and and the work. I mean, we were working under some extreme circumstances in the beginning with with not a ton of communication with each other. So there had to be a lot of trust right away. Yeah. Did you use snail mail or? The phone was yeah. You did. Um, there was a there was a messenger service, JPay or something. Mm-hmm. A J, yeah, JPay, where she could send me messages electronically, but I can only answer back by writing. And at the time during the, the heat, the height of the COVID, it might be five to seven days before I can use the phone again. Really? And then it would be fifteen minutes, thirty if I'm lucky on a on a lucky day. And so the communication was tight. You know, we couldn't work at a, at a fast pace, but. It worked out. I mean, I remember my first major article was Business Insider. So that was like huge for me at the time. Sheesh. Fantastic. But yeah, it worked out. I was going to ask you about the DOC, the Department of Corrections. How supportive or not supportive have they been wherein Empowerment Avenue is concerned? They've been quiet. They haven't said anything. <laughs> That's probably good, right? Yeah. They haven't said anything. They haven't, they haven't been in the way. It's been smooth. Would you like more support from them or is it better they're just quiet? I think the way it is now is pretty good. I think that on some level acknowledge, I wish so, this is what I wish. One of the things we struggle with is like, I know I I go into San Quentin now. I just got approved to be a volunteer there. And so when I go in, I can't go in as Empowerment Avenue. I can't do that. It's like when you go in as a journalist, you're there to cover a story. But if you're a journalist volunteering for a program, you can't do a story while you're there, right? You have to separate those halves, and I don't like doing that. So I wish it was. But if I, as a volunteer, because of the rules, if I help people make money, if I go in there helping people make money, then there would be over familiarity, and I couldn't be a volunteer anymore, and a incarcerated person would get in trouble. And so I wish we, it was accepted that this is a good thing. It's the one thing missing from San Quentin. You allow people to develop these careers, and you can't do nothing for it, do, do nothing with it. You're just working at San Quentin News for 36 bucks a month. Like, you can't go to the next level. And then you you do 20, 30 years and you parole, you parole in a desperate circumstance. You got six months of transitional housing before you have to fly on your own in this expensive world. Sure. And you're going to spend half that time looking for a job, (laughs) right? That's right. But if you already have a career thriving while you're here and you walk out to income and you walk out to connections, it's different. Now you're ready. And so um, I think that that's something missing that they should embrace, but I haven't pitched it to them. I'm scared of what they might say. So it's not totally their fault that they haven't embraced it. Maybe they will. But uh, right now we're so overwhelmed with just meeting the demand for our work and trying to keep up with that. It's really hard to expand. But I've been meaning to approach people uh, personally, like me or bond to certain people, and see what they can do as far as making this um, legitimate, like taking that clause out of the Title 15 that makes this a bad thing. Yeah. Emily, where do you get your funding from? So 
we started this with no money. This was a grassroots effort. And then under, you know, the past nonprofit, we got a little bit of seed funding that was mostly just going toward communication costs and buying people books. The life-changing opportunity was Mellon Foundation was kicking off its Envisioning Freedom Fund, and we were invited to apply for its first round of grantees. This is also while Rasan was still incarcerated, so we were having meetings with the Mellon Foundation, Rasan on the phone from prison with Zoom calls with Mellon and and sort of talking through what we could do with funding. And they saw that vision and we got operational funding, which has sort of changed a lot. It's allowed us to do a lot. And now we're on our way to establishing our own nonprofit. And Rasan has come home and been our fundraiser. And it's been clear to me how much people believe in this vision and how when Rasan talks about it, it really resonates with people. They just get it. And it's obviously not about money. That's not why we started doing this work, but it's been pretty incredible to see that people believe in us enough to, to fund us and, and make this a, an organization where we now have four people on staff supporting people in prison. Where does the money go? Meaning how do you use, say, the Mellon Grant? Yeah, we mostly use it for operations. But we also use it to seed projects, like we seed Blackwell's writing program. We seed art exhibits. I believe we also partially seeded Corey's exhibit in New York at my gallery, Save the Flower. And so one of the things we try to do is have a, a project fund. And what this project fund is for, if you're incarcerated and you have the next great idea to start your own nonprofit, your own exhibit, whatever that idea is, we want to be able to give you the support to carry that idea out. And so that's what some of the money is used for. But most of these operations, but we've been blessed. We So far, people in prison make more than us. So as long as that keeps happening, we're doing a great job. I'll add, <laughs> prison communication is expensive. It costs money. In some states, yeah. not so much. California, I think we've been lucky. The costs are lower. But Texas, we are spending a lot of money just to communicate with people. And then you have to remember... Folks inside do not have a lot of access to books or writing materials or art supplies. And so money is going just toward them getting what they need to learn and to grow their careers. And also for us, just for the simple sake of communication, we need money to do that, unfortunately. Why is communication so expensive? Can you explain? Monopoly. In California, um, some lawsuits happened, but it used to be $25 for me to talk to you for 15 minutes out of state. So my family was in New York. Now they got it down to about $2 or whatever. But it took years. It went down to 10 and 6 and it took years. And I thought that affected other states, but evidently not. Texas is still super expensive. Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. Is it? I didn't realize that. I think I paid $6 for a 30-minute call the other week. It's it's and then, you know, they've introduced tablet e-message service which allows us to do a lot of our work, but every single message costs money. So you could be spending anywhere between 5 cents and 25 cents per single message, a service that, you know, we get out here for free. Right. Yeah, California is now doing free phone calls because of a bill that passed. I, I also think um, Connecticut, yes, Connecticut. Email. Mm-hmm. too, uh, just just yeah. switched. Yeah, There's to been a lot of calls. advocacy around I that. use JPay to communicate with people in, that I write to in, in prison. 
So what states and prisons are you working with? You just mentioned uh, a couple, Texas, of course, California. What other states? 14 states, 28 prisons. I can only name about seven off the top of my head, so I went to Emily. <laughs> 14 states. Can you name some of them? I can name some. Go ahead. And then Emily will take over. Georgia, Tennessee, New York, Washington State, California, Texas, Michigan, Emily. Uh, <laughs> Emily is a state? <laughs> I didn't know that. We're, we're, we're all around the country. I mean, I think there's, yeah, it's states around the country. I'll just wrap it up with that. <laughs> now, how, how did that happen that you expanded to such an incredible degree? I mean, at least when I was recruiting people, I think that the feeling was we want to be working with writers at San Quentin, but there's a lot of resources at San Quentin. There's the newspaper at San Quentin and there's volunteers who are coming in. So we also want to be working with writers who have none of that support. So very early on, it was an effort to recruit just wherever, you know, we were reading talented writers and that's just taken us around the, I mean, we could, literally be working in every single prison in America right now. There's so sure many you could. incredible writers who need support. I think it's also important for us to have geographic diversity. I mean, I cannot stress like the story of a black woman incarcerated in Texas who's been in solitary confinement for eight years is a very different story than mm. a white man incarcerated in New York. I'm not saying one is more important than the other, but we need a diversity of voices to really give a full picture of what is happening and sort of the issues we see in mainstream media in which you don't have as many women or queer voices or those voices are very marginalized. That's that's also very similar in prison. So we've done a lot of work increasing our support of, of women and, and queer folks these past few years. Right. Empowerment Avenue has a mentoring program. Can you explain uh, what that is and how it works? your volunteers that work with people inside? So that's it. You know, that's really how we run the writing cohort. And I respectfully, I'm going to push back on the word mentoring. Okay. Because I think mentoring assumes that people on the outside have a lot to teach people on the inside and people on the inside are just, they're waiting for that. We're bringing people together and they both have a lot to give each other. So I think of it as building relationships, creating partnerships, power building, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think we specifically shied away from the word mentorship. So our entire writing cohort is based upon the premise that people with media writing and editing experience on the outside are partnered with incarcerated writers. Those are one-on-one -on -one partnerships in which they're encouraged to get to know each other's work, build collaborative ideas, and that the person on the outside is going to support the person on the inside's career where there are limitations caused by the prison, such as no email access. And that's how we run the program. So we have, I'd say, about 30 active incarcerated writers working with maybe 50 active volunteers. And then the larger volunteer cohort is about 200 people and, and people help out with projects and one-off requests. But the core work is done because of this partnership we've sort of helped build and facilitate. Um, and people who are, you know, they're not getting paid, 
they're here because they believe in the work. And in many cases, it's changed people's lives, both on the inside and the outside. Mm. And where do you find your volunteers? Is it difficult to find the people you need? I think as much interest as we've seen from folks in prison, we've seen a lot of response on the outside. I have a freelance listserv that I've recruited from since the beginning. I remember I sent out an email to that listserv back in 2020, and we got so much interest I had to shut it down. So there's a lot of people that I think have been, like Rasan was saying earlier, like they're they're curious about these stories. Maybe they've just never even spoken to an incarcerated person. And our job is let's sort of provide people the right support and connect people. And, per, you know, they need help. We can help. And that seemed to work for us so far. You've had some art exhibitions featuring one of them in particular, featuring a mutual friend of yours and mine, Corey Devin Arthur. Can you tell us a little bit about that exhibition that you were behind? Sure. That is called Save the Flower, and it was really a visual expression of Corey's feminist journey inside prison. So he painted feminist icons, women who had inspired that journey. We supported that, got it in a gallery. We had a lot of incredible partners, including the Brooklyn Friends, the Brooklyn Meeting House. And it was one of the most incredible things I've ever been a part of. We had a video component. We had poetry readings. We had this packed house for the opening night. It's just really this uh, kind of this electrifying project that I think showed us what was possible as we were growing the art side of Empowerment Avenue. Have you ever done anything like that before? Well, Rasan had an incredible art project that seeded our art side, and I'll let him talk about that. Yeah, I became a curator for a project with Flyway Productions and the Museum of African Diaspora Moad. <laughs> And it went really well. It was called um, Meet Us With Your Mercy, Painting for Justice. And it was covered by 26 different newspaper articles. It did incredible. It was during COVID. It, it was supposed to run to like January and it got extended to March. Hmm. It ran from October 2020 to March 2021. And where was that, Rasan? It was in California. Oh, California. It, it, it was at the Museum of African Diaspora. Diaspora, right? Diaspora, <laughs> that fancy word. And then the second part got delayed by COVID, but then in 2022, I believe, it ran at Counterpost. And there's this incredible show with women dancing in the air, followed by um, the, the opening uh, was a panel discussion with me, Amelda Weaver, and some other great people, and uh, the art of incarcerated people on the wall, painting for justice. Fantastic. And it was aimed at uniting Jews and Blacks to um, fight against mass incarceration. And I have to plug, we have an art show in a few weeks in Grand Rapids, Michigan, featuring the work of an incredible artist. His name is Alvin Smith. We connected with him last year, and he had sort of talked with a gallery owner about showing his collection, which he had been developing over the past two decades of his incarceration. And this is something where everything was already seated. Alvin had the vision. He had the work. We came in and now we're going to have a gallery show. So we're excited. Oh, that's great. That's wonderful. Now, I know you brought some creative writing with you today to share with our listeners. What would you like to read? I would like to read a piece by Demetrius Buckley, and it's called Forgetting How to Swim. Okay. It was published in Belt Magazine. 
And just real quick, let me just tell you who Dimitri is. He's a sure. amazing writer and poet. Uh, his work has been published in the Michigan Quarterly Review, Rhino, Magno Prism, Filter. He's a, a chat book prize winner, multiple poetry prize winners. And this is a, a creative writing piece. And it starts in, it goes like this. In a small prison yard, I give Gil a powerful embrace. Damn, bro. I ain't getting no hug, Raphael says. All this favoritism. Here he go, acting like a baby, I joke. We are back together at Baraga, friends reuniting, discussing what made history in a system that raised men. Lake Superior's down the street. It's maritime scent mocking the yard. Meet you crazy as hell, Raphael says, laughing. How you hear dudes say he about to do something to you when you was in your cell and dude downstairs in his cell? You irritating already. I told you what I heard. You need to get your ears checked, Raphael jokes. Meech got PTSD, Gil responds. Prison tore us up into confetti. But what you finna do when you get home? I've been working on rapping, writing songs, Raphael said. But if not, I'll get a job and be legit. You're gonna have to fix yourself, little bro. The world will wear on you. The women, the freedom, the drugs. Out the group, Gil had a life without parole but acted as if going home nestled in every tomorrow. My 20-year sentence was down to eight. Raphael had two months before release, before filling the solid ground away from this seashore of prison. You're done drowning. Don't test the waters no more, Gil says. I'm going to show you all I can do it. Watch. Arrested at 18, Raphael did 13 years inside a system full of angry, manipulative men and made it through unscratched unscathed. I'd taken a liking to Raphael seven years ago, a slow buildup from when we first met at Baraga, where he was too playful, goofy. I was guarded from any camaraderie, serious about taking control of my life, realizing my wrong decision-making. I had left my family for friends for an honor that got lost as soon as I was caught. Now to hear the rest, you got to go to Belt Magazine. <laughs> it's called, again, Forgetting How to Swim. Thank you so much. We're almost out of time. Is there anything else that we haven't covered about your organization that is very important? Yeah, I just want to say um, I'm just very proud of Emily for like taking on this mission with me and uh, everyone else in our organization, Christine LaShawn, Dijon Joy. And I feel like it's having a powerful effect. The philosophy of inclusion is spreading, paying people real money, including people in job opportunities, understanding we still have families out there we need to support. And at the very least, let me make a couple of thousand so they don't have to take care of me. They don't have to pay the phone bills and the visiting credit costs, right? right. Let's not let our families pay for our incarceration. And I want to say proudly that it's not fully announced yet, so I won't go into details, but we have two people who have fellowships for prison for ridiculous amounts of money, life-changing amounts of money. And I'm just really proud of that, that they were included in these opportunities and we're part of that. And now we have a zero recidivism rate on the outside. And three of our guys on the outside got fellowships. Hmm. They're doing incredible. So I'm just really proud that this program is translating in such a way that it just, it makes all the sacrifice and hard work to me worth it. That's really, you should be proud, both thank of you. you. Yeah, thank you. Thank well, it was wonderful to have you on pursuing justice today. And can you tell us your website in case listeners uh, want to learn more about you? 
EmpowermentAv.org. And we're on social media, Twitter, Instagram, and we have a monthly Substack where all this incredible work gets summed up. You can read about the stories that are going out, the art, the film projects. That's The Substack is the best place to, to stay in the loop. Yeah, and if you want to support Empowerment Avenue, you can donate, you can volunteer, but at the very least, you can read that Substack. And if a story resonates with you, please tweet it out. Because the more analytics that each writer gets, the more they make, the more people want to see their, our work published. So help us out in any way you can. That's great. Thank you. Thank you. I, I hope people will look for your website and read, as you say, what, what is there. Thank you both so much for being on my podcast. The next time we will meet Bill Dillon an exoneree from the Innocence Project of Florida, probably one of the very first exonerees I ever met. He's written a book about his 27-year ordeal to gain his freedom. It's co-authored with his wife, Ellen Moskowitz, and so uh, he will be on next time. Thanks to my sponsor, the Innocence Project of Florida, and to Jordan at the podcast and my producer, Join us next time on Pursuing Justice, and thanks for listening.